Hello, I'm Mary Nightingale. Welcome to the Piper Podcast, How I Grew My Brand. Today I'm with Fairfax Hall and Sam Goolsworthy. Along with master distiller Jared Brown, they founded the pioneering premium craft gin brand Sipsmith. It's now a multi-million pound global business, but when Sipsmith launched in 2009, it was the first small batch copper pot gin distillery to open in London for almost 200 years. And it still maintains its roots in West London, where it first began. Welcome Fairfax and Sam. Hi. Hi. We're going to talk about the dynamic of working together and having success as a partnership. But what do you put your success down to? Is it your own making? Is it luck? Is it timing? What is it? I would say it's a case of having a great product with a great story. And if you have both of those, that's a, that's a winning combination. You could have the best product in the world, but if you can't actually get people to try it or taste it, then you, they're never going to discover that it's a great product. Or you could have the best story in the world, but if the product doesn't back it up, they might try it once, but they'll never come back again. And I think what we had with Sipsmith was this combination of a really interesting story around the first distillery in London for the best part of 200 years and a product that is simply fantastic. Underlying all of that is timing. You have an amazing product, but if the market isn't ready for it, you know, if it's too early, if it's too late, then actually the resonance of it and the relevance of it just peter out. So for us, timing was a large part of it, and I think... Consumers didn't really know quite how much they really wanted gin. We knew that bartenders did. It's all about a great product. You can't go in without passion and enthusiasm. But underlying all of that, in any product, in any entrepreneurial vision, timing is a great deal of that. And some of that timing is in your control and some of it ain't. All right. (laughs) We're going to talk a little bit more about that, obviously, later on. But I want to go right back to the beginning. How, How do you know each other? How did you meet? So we grew up together in Cornwall. I um, uh, come from near St Dives. Sam's about half an hour away near Truro. Mm. Our families have been great friends and we've been uh, nicking gin from the drinks cabinet since we were very small. <laughs> <laughs> so there were, did you, Sam, was there, did you like gin always? Loved gin. Absolutely ad- ad- adored it. I mean, I can remember when Fairfax and I were at sort of, you know, late teen parties when mates were drinking beer and, you know, we were there squirrelling away a bit of gin and you know one of the influences I had at an early age around about 14 you know 13 even I think was my grandfather who you know injured in training in the second world war you know had the shakes and he would pull out his he'd make a martini and he'd pull out a pocket handkerchief and he would bring his martini to his lips using his uh, uh, silk handkerchief behind his neck to lever this martini <laughs> up and just being in awe of you know watching this man the ingenuity what I did and actually thought what is he drinking you know and it certainly calmed his shakes and, uh, <laughs> and I think there were lots of different contributing factors about what, what led us to led us to gin but we knew we were great friends and obviously everyone says you know there's a real danger you be very careful going into business with a great mate well and that's I think, what they always say well, I think isn't history's it? littered with people that have attempted it um, and um, I can't I'm not quite sure what the recipe of our particular success is I think it's because we complement each other so well and we have done for you know you know growing up as great mates and then at school and and even then beyond that and I think even you know our 11th year at Sipsmith which is it's quite clear you know what skill sets we bring and we recognize that and we know to subordinate to the other ones uh, um, skills or, or experience. Absolutely. You know, and I think that's that's critical. Okay, so can, can we unpick mm. that a little bit? How does mm. the dynamic work? As, as Sam said, we have very complementary skill sets and, and as a result, we don't... We question each other's 
uh, decision making and we have a robust uh, conversation about it, but we defer to the other in their area of expertise. So I'm a finance ops kind of um, doer. Um, mm. Sam is a salesman out and out. And, yeah, I mean, uh, and we argue vociferously about yeah. marketing because neither of us know what <laughs> yeah. we're doing. So. Well, I think, you know, you, what, you, what you've got here in Fairfax is a sort of a hyper-intelligent, structural, you know, body of brilliance. Whereas I have just come from a relatively rebellious sort of background and not really conformed or followed any of my educational journey. And, you know, uh, was was... I don't know, I just brought a very different discipline. So I think our roles were split very organically and that, you know, Fairfax was always going to be able to bring that operational discipline and the kind of, you know, the very calm, no, Sam, that's, we can't do that. Uh, whereas I was always, you know, out there talking, you know, doing a bit more of the sales uh, and, and a bit more of the kind of advocacy piece. Fairfax would ask me for my counsel on some areas and I would ask for his. And it is that rather cliched sort of yin and yang, actually. Mm. And, and it's been a really terrific force of, uh, of good and, a, and a, great, a great pairing, actually. Do you think that you could have succeeded separately? No. I don't, not in the way we have, I think. You know, I mean, I, I think what, what we both share is a, an acute level of optimism uh, and positivity. I don't mm. think Sipsmith would be where it is without the combination that we bring together as a team. And I think that mm. dynamic has been massively important in, in the growth of the brand. Can I go back a little, you know, even, even take, further? Take so, me back so, as so, far so as you like. I went to go and work at Fuller's Brewery in, in West London, quit uni, went to go and work with them. I, I was there for about 10, 12 years with them. And the last six, they punted me over to the USA. They said, go over there to America and learn everything you can about brewing and, and try to grow the Fuller's brand over there. And I went to Colorado and bounced around pretty much every state in America. And it was there that we saw this sort of seismic shift that was happening in consumption in craft. So, you know, which was microbrewing, craft distillation, even sort of boutique wineries and chocolatiers. And there was suddenly, you know, he's gone from a world of, in America, branding of sort of big is beautiful and, and really important to small, niche, bespoke, high value, you know. And, and, and there were consumers that were actively seeking out those particular brand choices. And I was completely one of them and resonated with their motivation and decision-making behind that. Fairfax came over um, to do an MBA at Wharton Business School, just south of New York in Philly. And I said, hey, look what's going on. There's a whiskey, beer, craft distilling, distillation movement going on. I think we could actually come together, go to London, set up our set up a, a sort of gin distillery with that which we have sipped on for, you know, the last 20 something years. What do you say? He said, well, let, let's do it the right way. Let's go and research, get under the skin of the consumer, learn a little bit about the market. Uh, um, and, you know, I'm being sponsored here by Diageo. So I'll go back to Diageo, make ourselves look a little bit more credible as well on the business plan, which, <laughs> which, which, which always helped. But then we, so, and it was while we were there, we were, you know, uh, a Union Street Cafe in New York. I can sort of vaguely remember the date where we'd sort of research what the London gin scene looked like. And as I mentioned before, you know, there used to be hundreds, certainly tens of different distilleries out there in, in, in London, the birthplace of gin. And for many different reasons, they'd all petered out, folded, collapsed or moved, leaving this reasonably blank canvas of opportunity which we thought there there it is for the taking so we went back to london and went to go and try and visit the beef eater distillery said can we come on a on a tour you know we visited lots of tours and they wouldn't let you in sorry we don't do tours i said well come on this is what 
we'd experience as being the principal motivator is accessibility and transparency. Uh, um, and, and therein was our second opportunity. It was not only setting up a gin distillery, it was actually just setting up a distillery that you could see, learn, see the people, fundamentally the soul. And that's what we saw that these craft movement have was, was a brand with soul uh, and something that you could really connect with. And there was a human element to it mm. rather than just huge industrial levers. And, and that for us felt so powerful. We had the dream and we've been talking about it for what must have been a good five years. Um, what year the, are we talking here? So, Give me so, a date. So I, I was in the States, yeah. In, I was in the States from 2002 to 2004. And, um, and that's when the conversation began. And like any of these things, you go, right, we're going to start this business. And five years later, we're still going to dinner parties. And it's the third year in the row that the people I see once a year have said, oh, so have you started? And it's like, no, I haven't. (laughs) It became embarrassing. And um, one of the blockers was the fact that it seemed like actually this was going to be impossible. There were laws and regulations going back to the 1700s that prevented you from having a distillery in London. Because gin was the great evil back then. It became known as Mother's Ruin, didn't it? It was was the the end of London society. One in four houses had its own distilling equipment. The laws that were put in place in the Gin Acts of the 1700s to restrict production, to crack down on the epidemic of the 1700s in the Hogarthian era, were still present in 2007. So um, suddenly, I was sitting there in Diageo, and I see this bit of paper come across the desk to do with duty. And it was a white paper, government-wide paper, written by this chap called Ian Bennington. And it was designed to help Scotch whiskies uh, distilleries open their doors and make themselves a little bit more accessible to the public because there was this growing demand around provenance and visiting some of these littler distilleries and and also to have retail premises because it was very difficult to sell from a duty-suspended site in Scotland, etc., etc. And I rang this chap up. I said to him, look, we've got this idea and I think that um, what these changes that you're proposing for Scotland and the Scotch whisky industry would also apply to us. And I think as a result, am I right, in that you would support us in this, in this venture? And he said, absolutely not. But I probably wouldn't be able to stop you. Ah. And that was the chink of light. And we thought, actually, do you know what? If we're going to do it, we need to do it now. So um, we left our jobs, raised a bit of money by selling our houses, which was uncomfortable with how, actually how did well you can the, imagine the you other halves the families yeah, I mean, you can imagine that how that conversation went so I, i'd actually I'd, I'd got married um a year before and we bought a wreck of a house in london and uh, and spent nine months um fastidiously doing it up and uh, making it a lovely home and six months later um we had to sell it to uh, to take the money out to um to do the business, which was very tricky, and Sam had to do the same with his flat. And you have to have skin in the game yourself, and it's not enough to just be 100% committed um, and our skin in the game is the fact that we're throwing our careers away and we're, we're going for this. No, you need to have some hurt money, as they called it. And, uh, and, and it also, we had to have some, some kind of working capital to, um, to just get going. We then subsequently applied for our distillery licence, and we're probably told no. No, I'm sorry, you can't have it. And it was a bit of a body blow, I have to say, because we naively simply thought that, well, if, this, if our interpretation of this white paper means that uh, we can uh, get this licence, then, of course, it shall be so. Did, did you ever think of taking legal advice, or was this just all done on a it's, hunch? It's, it's remarkable, it was, yeah. going back now, 
was unbelievable. That, uh, that we, we had that insane level of naivety that uh, we would simply do this and re- rewrite 200 years of history and, and start up a distillery again in London. But, um, but I think that's part of the beauty of the entrepreneurial Absolutely. mindset is that you have this incredibly potent combination of naivety and optimism and determination. And those three factors drive you on. Because if you knew what you knew, you, you would never start a business. It's, uh, well, yeah. you, you know, I think I, I interview quite a lot of entrepreneurs. And this is something you all seem to share, is this kind of fearlessness. Yeah. What is it about the entrepreneur that means that if you've got a bit missing of your brain or something, where, where, where's the fear? I think if I did it on my own, the fear would come up and swell and, and rage around me. I think when you share that immense leap of faith with someone else, uh, uh, um, it really does help because you're sharing that very, you know, that, that, those hot coals, you're walking them together or the plank, whatever metaphor you want to throw at it. it I think the, you know, it, it, sharing that difficult time is much easier uh, and it's also much better to share the high times as well you know naive optimism is a really potent force in in this and not overthinking it you know if your gut instinct if your real sense of internal stomach feel gives you the sense that it's got to be the right thing and yes there are going to be all manner of different obstacles and hurdles you know but by god you'll cross them you know come what may that's the kind of attitude you need to go to go in there. Resilience, persistence, and not taking no. And that's exactly what we did. We just refused to hear the word no from Revenue and Customs. And eventually, thanks to our joint persistence, we managed to get what we wanted. It took two years to Chipping get... Chipping away gradually, because there wasn't one decision to be made. Did no. you not have to chip away and keep writing? Oh, we camped on the Revenue Customs doorstep in Stratford. You know, we spoke to MPs. We were pestering those people that we knew to, to make the difference. And sure enough, in the 2006 Finance... I think it was 2006 Finance Act, there was special dispensation given. And I think we had put so much effort and energy and, and we'd annoyed and irritated so many people uh, who were the ones instrumental in, in, in putting in this little addendum of, you know, with special dispensation, you may now get a license. And suddenly we were able to, we had something almost tangible to raise money against and, and go to the market. That's exactly what we did. We formulated a, a, a bit of a board and we raised a bit of money and then we found a site. And then suddenly we thought, oh my God, we've got no one who knows how to use this. You're listening to the Piper Podcast, How I Grew My Brand. Today, I'm with Fairfax Hall and Sam Galsworthy, founders of Sipsmith Gin. Neither of you knew anything about gin. Absolutely. So, so you teamed up with a guy who did know about gin, is that right? Thank goodness, yes. Geraldine Coates, who's an absolute superstar, she ran a website, still does, called Gin Time. Way before the gin boom, she was uh, championing gin. And she invited us to uh, this party in celebration of one of the great gin drinks, the Negroni, that was being held at the Beefeater Distillery. And she introduced us to this chap, Jared Brown, and his wife, Anastasia Miller, an amazing couple who have done all sorts of different things, including launching distilleries and creating gin brands. And Jared is one of the out-and-out historians of our age. He's arguably the foremost drinks historian in the world. He has an incredible collection of recipes and books going back through, through the ages. 
he quizzed us on this venture and what we were doing and what the kind of ethos was. And then uh, Sam hooked him in with a behind-the-scenes tour of the Fuller's Brewery. And, uh, and we got him in the pub afterwards and he said, look, Jared, come on, are you interested? And he said, I'll join you, but only if we respect tradition and celebrate the beauty of a classic traditional London dry gin. And he said, you know, you have changed the law. You've just inherited 200 years of gin distilling history and you have a, a right, if not a duty, to reflect that back in, in what we craft. So I will only join you if you make a commitment now that this is our sort of true north, this is the direction of, of travel. And we just went, sure. We owe so much of the success of this brand over the last 11 years to that man. OK, so talk to me about the brand. We were dead set on, on, a, on a package that looked timely but timeless as well. It needed to look like it had been around for a long time, but in an authentic way, but also timely in that it's relevant and it's slightly quirky and in its weird iconography that exists there. There's a wax top to reference the old tamper proofing. There's copper, real leaf copper to express the benefits of copper distillation gives you. There's the swan. Everyone's, why is the swan on your label? And it's because of the swan's neck where the vapour turns and heads to the condenser. That's where the magic happens. And we, we teamed up with a brilliant company uh, and team called the Big Fish Guys that were really sensational and helping guide us through the branding journey, which is enough to turn any hair grey. It was a really, really difficult journey and, and one that we came out at the end, luckily, you know, the right, the right side of. It is all about that brand, isn't it, to make it recognisable. And you clearly did have a very strong view of perhaps what you didn't want it mm. to be, maybe more than what you did want it to and be. And I think a message to anyone out there that is going through this journey is to have the self-discipline and strength to really stand up to any brand team that presents something and you don't like it, you don't like the feel of it. And just because you are nearing a deadline that you need to get out there to meet, you know, commitments that you've made, you know, you only get one chance to really get your branding absolutely right. And I think you need to honour and really be true to and listen to yourself and and thankfully we had each other to really sort of bounce off what we liked, what we didn't like. And, and you what, what was were always working. in agreement about what you liked and didn't broadly, like, Broadly, yeah. Say? I mean, broad, broadly, yeah. But, you know, the branding company were the shepherd that were taking us through this journey and they were the ones that finessed it and made it absolutely just what it is and without them we, we wouldn't have been there. But I do think it's really important just to, to listen to your instincts when going through the branding journey just because you haven't done it before doesn't mean that you don't have a credible voice or say or opinion on what something should look feel taste sound like you are ultimately going to have to live that brand you are going to be the person that pulses that brand out there what is really brave and really important is to get a very fresh perspective and when people come in, in a very naive way into a category we don't know this we'll come on the journey with you we can bring the right structure and the right dynamics and the right questions and provoke and actually, that is the way we felt to disrupt. We did the same with a PR company. We went with a PR company that didn't know the first thing about the drinks industry, didn't even know a single journalist in that space. Uh, the same with some of the salespeople and the marketing people that we, that we grew. We actually looked at recruiting and developing and surrounding ourselves with people that were very fresh-faced to this relatively complex, very old-school category of drinks in Britain. And actually, I think uh, uh, it was a really potent decision for us to be brave enough to recruit people in those early days, both at agency as well as core 
team members that knew the square root of nothing. It's that challenger mindset, yeah. isn't it? And if you, if you as a tiny challenger play by the industry norms and by the, the rules that the big guys are playing by, you're never going to win. So you have to stand out, you have to be distinctive, and you have to zig when they're zagging. And that was the approach. It was quirky. People looked at our label with that swan that looks a bit like a Dali-esque drawing. We want to look quirky. We want to look different. And we want to be uncompromising as well. We want the bottle to reflect everything about the brand. And so we did hand dip it in wax for the closure because... It's really fun. It's that moment when you're tearing off the, the top of the coffee, you know, that you, everyone's done that. Well, that's the same you get with the bottle when you tear that wax off and the cork pops out. It's just, it's a wonderful moment. It costs a fortune. Every single bottle has to be hand-dipped. You know, so someone picks up the bottle with the cork in, dips it in a vat of wax, turns it upside down, lets it dry. There is no shortcut. You can't mechanise it. But it matters to us because actually... That's what we thought we should be standing for, is that smithy, that, that human touch. Now, I think you're familiar with Piper's concept of key inflection points in a business, when things need to step change. They call it 7-17-70. It could be turnover or number of sites or indeed number of people. So where is Sipsmith now? Well, we're now 70 people, 70 yeah. plus. It would be lovely if we were 70 million in sales, but we're yeah, not quite yes, there yet. Yeah, but, quite uh, yeah. so we're, you know, we're getting there. We're not far, <laughs> we're, we're, we're not far away. I thought it was a really interesting concept, that of Piper's, the 1770. And I really pondered on that question, having listened to a couple of the podcasts before. And there was a cultural change in the business when we reached pretty much 17. I can remember, as I went back, 17, 17 people. Yeah. So before that, we were all in one room. And there wasn't really any need for a meeting because everyone could hear what the other person's intent or mission was, objective was, or you know how sales were doing, or the next press thing that was coming, or the next product, or whatever it was. You just heard it. You know the information was osmotic. It just happened. You picked it up, and we ran out of space. And then we moved from Ravenscourt Park down to Chiswick. It was like going from sort of nursery school into that kind of teenage playground. You know, and you. Everyone's all quite awkward and looking at each other in really weird ways. And there were a few new faces that suddenly came into the business. And we were 17 people. And that was when we had this kind of cultural crisis. It wasn't, it wasn't really a crisis, but it was a cultural change. Suddenly there was a, you know, we were actually bringing in some relatively experienced people who've come from sort of big name uh, businesses to help, you know, step change what we were doing. And they were going, this is weird, right? You know, no one was really getting on. And so I do remember very clearly that moment where our culture changed or we had to address that cultural shift in, in, in the team. And that was at 17. I can remember the moment we were seven, 17, and now we're 70. You, um, you went international, didn't you, fairly early on. Mm. Um, how much of a challenge was that? It was a total disaster. Yeah. We somehow sleptwalked into a position where we were in 49 different countries with one person trying to manage it, all on third-party distributor basis, and it was completely impossible we had an aspiration to be an international business. I and mean, the, the underlying vision of the, the brand was that we'd be around for 200 years and available in all four corners of the globe. It's quite some aspiration. And, yeah, it? Well, it, it sets that mindset of like, let's ignore short-termism. It was one of the most disappointing things I ever remember hearing someone senior at Diageo say was that um, the long term is a series of short terms. It's just not. You have to have that long-term vision. And that was what was driving us. And we thought, I know, 
we'll send our best sales guy. We'll send Sam. He's going to go and live in these countries. And we shipped him out to, uh, to Spain for six months and shipped him out to America for six months. And it was pretty miserable, wasn't it? Yeah, it was. It was very lonely. It was very difficult. And, and we were very responsive. We weren't proactive. You know, we had people from Italy, from, from India, from the Middle East, and everything saying, could we buy some Sips? And we go, yeah, sure, have some Sips, you know. And, and so we went on this program, what we called or justified as being flag planting, where we just get the brand out. And the beautiful thing about gin is it lasts pretty much forever. So mm. you can stick it in a market, it'll there, it'll sort of ultimately sell itself. We couldn't activate it. We couldn't support or market it. But it was just out there. Suddenly then we woke up and we had 49 countries and it was a massive distraction. And instead of going about it with a real clear strategy of going, right, we're going to go narrow and we're going to go deep. We're going to focus on four countries and we're going to over-index. We're going to build a business plan around that that loses money for four years. We're going to invest in one person in each market to run that. We're going to incentivize the, 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 the route to market so that they feel a part of the brand instead of just doing exactly what we did, which was... Great in that it looked like we were a bigger brand than we were when we weren't. And actually, when you, you know, lying in bed under the sheets at night, you're going, actually, we're really mm. very small brand internationally, but people think we're huge, which I think played to our advantages in some ways. But actually, it was a, a long way from reality. Mm-hmm. What about that journey from 17 to 70? We went from being these entrepreneurs, you know, solving problems, you know, turnkey, you know, really trying to go about being very creative, trying to be dynamic to suddenly having to manage people. And that isn't a discipline that we came from. I'm sure there'll be people listening that completely resonate with that moment where you've had to shift and go, well, actually, sorry, I just want to be out there in front of our customers. I actually just want to be in there solving why... Suddenly you were management. God, it was like like being a a, sort of a teacher, a headmaster, and actually shifting the mindset. We went from being right at the forefront, you know, and leading the way, come, come with us, follow us, you know, we know where we're going, to, sorry, what? And in the end, we sort of came around to it. But mm. It was, it was, on the, it was on the plus side, <laughs> On the plus side, they knew what they were talking about, which was yeah. great. Yeah. And, and actually, that was one of the revelations, mm. was mm. Um, you can only grow the business so far on your own. I think we hit, we hit our buffers at uh, about 17 people. I was still doing the books. And it's quite scary. I I wasn't an accountant. And every time we thought about bringing a finance guy on, we would just go, actually, do you know what? We could get two more salespeople if we just didn't have a finance person. So I was like, fine, I'll carry on doing the finances. And and we got to this point where actually you realise you have to bring people in who know what they're talking about. We'd solved the marketing problem years ago because, as we said, um, it was the one thing we always argued about. So we had to bring someone else in, in who actually know what they're talking about to solve those arguments. So that was the first big hire that happened uh, around about the seven people level. But uh, around that 17 level, we just had to have a proper operations person, a proper finance guy, et cetera, et cetera. And, and that was really the change. It was bring people in yeah. who are better at doing what you do than you can yourself. And get an HR manager, presumably yes. at some oh, point. Yes, I know, yeah. That's, what a relief that must have been. Well, it was amazing. She is a what we call the Minister of Culture. So, in fact, I think, where we, I think when we look back at the last 10 years, I think we've been as obsessive about the culture of the company and the feel and the team spirit as we have around the performance. And we put them both on a par rather than sort of over-indexed in one or the other. And I think we've created this togetherness, a real family spirit where we sort of, you know, we graft together, but we laugh together. So you you 
grew big pretty quickly and you mentioned moving out of your little tiny uh, West London original uh, distillery to a much bigger premises. Three big stills, one smaller one. How did you fund all that? Well, the growth was actually funded organically. Yeah, We started at the height of the greatest recession has been for a generation and that set in place this mindset of we've got to be profitable this wasn't about growing a brand in the early 2000s where people would just raise money like water and and spend it equally quickly this was about actually creating a profitable enterprise that could sustain us in the long term without a vision to uh, you know to uh, crystallize that money so we were profitable within the first 18 months you know the the initial funding came from friends and families and and as we say from um, taking a bit of equity out of our houses but once we'd hit that profitability level it was just about really patiently reinvesting in the brand reinvesting in the business and it was tough and but it, it forced a different mindset so we really didn't do any marketing per se for the first two or three, maybe in four years, everything that we did that you would constitute as marketing was actually sales. And we put that kind of flip on it. So if we were going to a consumer show, we would only go to the ones where we knew that if it cost us 10 grand to be there and we were making a 50% margin, we could have 20 grand in our pockets at that you know, 50% and it would have paid off at the end of the week. And so everything that we did was around creating experiences that then paid back. And that mindset really sustained us and allowed us to grow through uh, the, the early years. And then when we got to that expansion, we, uh, we came across the Government Small Business uh, Loan Guarantee Scheme. And that got us the money to essentially borrow to, to fund the new stills. And part of that came out of a brilliant bit of advice we got from our wonderful chairman, a uh, chap called Rupert Hambrose, supported lots of small businesses and he said get a relationship with your bank manager before you need it so even in the early years when we had no need to borrow any money at all we went along and we struck up this relationship with a friendly bank manager and we borrowed twenty thousand pounds and uh, for it on a on a year's loan which we then paid back at the end of the year and that given us the opportunity to open up a conversation so we shared our numbers we shared our books um, and we were demonstrating that we were hitting our targets month on month. And so the next year we borrowed 40000 that we didn't need and, uh, and we paid it back. And so by the time that we came to six years later needing to expand and ring them up and saying, look, we'd like a half a million pound loan, 250000 from the bank, 250000 from uh, the, the guarantee scheme. He had a track record that we'd delivered time and time again. You'd softened him up. You'd we groomed had. him. We had. You had groomed I your bank manager. And it worked really well. If you are on a shoestring, you really appreciate the value of money and, and the importance of working capital and how precious a thing that is. So I think there is a fundamental thing for some people. They behave very differently if there's lots of money in the bank than if they don't. But, mm. you know, get a great relationship before you need it with those key stakeholders that can influence you when you really do. 
Well, you did expand mm. and you invested in this new distillery and, and the stills have names? We have four pot stills. We have, we have Prudence was the first one. Prudence was named after Gordon Brown's economic watchword at the beginning of the, the you know, we must be economically prudent. And we didn't think there was anything particularly prudent about quitting our jobs uh, and selling a house and starting a business in the biggest financial crisis of a generation. So ironically named she is. And then we invested in another pot still called Patience. We couldn't afford all all of her and we couldn't fit her into the second site so we had to put the swan's neck to one side and we thought well she just needs to be patient so we operated her as a macerating tank before that and then we thought gosh we've got another female name we need to find with a virtue you know behind it um, and then we had uh, Constance Constance was about making sure that even though you increase the number of stills you're using there is consistency from batch to batch and then we got Verity and Verity is about being truthful honouring and authentic to the mission that you're on. And these are all key philosophical values that we hold ourselves dear to daily. It all sounds like fun and games and rather charming and rather wonderful. And it, this is really very much how you've marketed yourselves. You may not have had a lot of money to begin with, mm. but you have been really clever and a little bit funny and a bit quirky and a bit... We came into the industry in a time when... It was fundamentally industrial processes on, on industrial sites behind closed doors. And we burst in with this vision that we wanted to be faces in a faceless industry and make it all about people and personality because fundamentally people don't buy logically, they buy emotionally. So if you can create an emotional connection via what you're selling because it's a piece of yourself, then we thought people yeah. would buy into that. We, I think, historically have never taken ourselves particularly seriously. But we take what we do very seriously, but we bring our character with it. And I think it's that character imbued that makes something distinctive. Mm. And I think distinctivity is very different to differentiation. OK, but what was the dynamic of that? I understand the ethos, but mm. was it word of mouth? Was it... Absolutely. It wasn't so much social media then, was it? No, right first, so, I, mean, I mean, now, of course, but yes. not then. No, then it wasn't. And in fact, I think, you know, I, I can remember ITV London coming to London and, and, and filming us. Uh, and it was a really good news story to share in a really relatively dark financial time. And, and so, so lots of press and journalists were really up for sharing that sort of and finally tonight moment, you yeah. know, where it's just like, you know, actually, and here's a really good news story. But then you, you, you sold your baby. Yeah, no, we did. For yeah. 50 million to beam Suntory. Well, this was an international issue. We, with our, our small board, had made a commitment very boldly uh, a few years before when we were at... I think we were a 75% UK business and talking about this global vision, we were going to be right in three years' time. We will be 60% international, 40% UK, and while still growing the UK, mm. obviously. And we came back and we checked in three years later on this particular point and uh, we did our presentation. And um, I think we'd gone up to we were 80% UK and 20% internationally. And we just couldn't solve this conundrum and... Sam had tried living abroad and it hadn't really worked and it was just desperately difficult to get cut through. And we were faced with a very stark choice. To really penetrate internationally, we felt we had to go and start our own uh, business there. We had to have our own import license. We had to pick a couple of markets. It would probably have been Spain and the USA uh, and build a team, build a sales and marketing team in the, in the country. And that would have cost millions. And it really was bedding the farm all over again, and it felt pretty uncomfortable. 
The other route was to try and find a partner that we could uh, give some kind of equity interest because that had become apparent that there was no way that anyone was going to actually build the brand unless they had an equity interest and use that as a shortcut to, to growing internationally. And we've been in conversations with lots of big, big spirits companies over the years um, who were uh, quite interested in what we were doing. And so we felt like actually we could go back to them and say, look, this is what we're after. And uh, they just felt so right. Mm. Beam Suntory, which in of itself was a, uh, a combination of a Japanese conglomerate, um, Suntory Holdings and Jim Beam, um, which was at the time, uh, about five years ago, um, a public company, they'd only recently come together as Beam and Suntory. And rather than being one big entity with brands within it, it actually felt like a collection of different brand houses. So Jim Beam is a brand house that uh, I think is still family run by the eighth generation Beam family. Maker's Mark was one of their other big brands. Uh, third-generation family still running the business. Suntory itself is a private company that um, is still run by the great-great-grandson of the person that founded the business. So it was like meeting some someone that, yes, they had the global distribution scale, but it didn't feel like we were just giving the brand over to another massive company. It felt like actually Sipsmith could continue to exist as a founder-led business within this larger entity without sacrificing our culture or our identity. But it was a leap of faith. The way you explain it is very logical, but it's mm. not all about logic, is it? It was a lot of soul-searching that went on, and actually, ultimately, there was real synergy in the, in the businesses. You know, there was a bit of blind faith, but we knew that of all the different businesses that we were out there, they had the longest-term line of sight, and that, for us, was... Then, you know, that and looking after our own team was the most important thing. And as Fairfax mentioned, it's been a really, really strong partnership. And I think one of the great shiny successes of a business being bought and it being a success uh, and founders being encouraged to stay on. And we are committed to this brand very much the long term. OK, so that was going to be my next question. Well, what is your standing within it now? You, you, did you sell it all or did you sell part of it? Or We're joint MDs and uh, we will remain firmly at that high level, you know, for some way to go. We've just done the three-year anniversary, um, and so the business is owned outright, so all the remaining shares are now belong to Beam Suntory. And, yeah, that was always the plan. And has it changed the culture? Mm. Not one iota to do with being part of Beam Suntory. The, the change that we've always experienced has come from growth. And that's been the challenge. And we grew pretty rapidly in the last three years in the UK, which had nothing to do with Beam Centauri because mm. we've retained 100% distribution capability in the UK. In fact, we don't uh, engage with those guys at all within the UK market. And yet we've more than doubled in those last three years. And the team with it has massively grown. And that has brought challenges. And one of the biggest issues is explaining to the team that the challenges and the stress they're feeling through this growth has got nothing to do with the fact that normally we're part of a, a, a bigger organisation. It's to do with the inherent challenges of becoming a bigger team and dealing with all those issues. Mm. So you, the dream came true, right? You, yeah, you, you made this wonderful gin brand. You've made a bit of money out of it. How yeah. does it feel? It feels great. Does it feel how you thought it would feel? People define success very differently. 
And I think I think that is a question I think people should ask themselves when they start any business is what does success look like for them? And really do some soul searching in that. It ain't the cash, I promise. It is really the people. It is must be the nice experience. Though. Come on, it must be nice. It helps pay the bills. And you're still friends. Yes. Happy still, days. Mate. <laughs> you know, we're still there. You know, we're, we're right to the finish line. <laughs> but I think the finish line is so far away. I mean, I think if you came in 20 years' time and we were doing another podcast, you'd still find us here. Mm. That's my prediction for the future. Sam Goolsworthy. Fairfax All, thank you so much. A pleasure. Thanks, thank, you. thank you. Thank you.